Welcome to Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast, episode number eight, Weird Weather, recorded Friday, December 1st, 2006. The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace Podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that. Show notes for this episode and a lot of other fun stuff can be found at www.uncontrolledairspace.com. Just because it's nice here today, this morning, doesn't mean that it's going to stay this way. Winter weather changes, and it changes generally for the worse. Their dealer network and their flight school network are begging them to produce this airplane called the Cessna Sport. And in the meantime, Brazil should let our guys come home. Welcome, everyone. Here we are again with, uh, what are we up to now? I think this is number eight. This is correct. Of the Uncontrolled uncontrolled Airspace Podcast. I'm Jack Hodgson uh, here with you on a a weird weather time. We'll we'll come back to that in a second. Uh, With us this morning, Dave Higdon, aviation photographer, senior editor of Kit Planes Magazine, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. Hey, Dave. Good morning, everybody. And we're going to come back to you in just a second, but first of all, Jeb Burnside is also with us, managing editor for Aviation Safety Magazine and contributing editor to AvWeb, howdy, the folks. aviation section. Howdy, uh, howdy do. So what the heck is going on here with the weather? I just, this is just, like, everything is topsy-turvy, all right? Here's the situation. Well, Jeb, you're just kind of, as near as I can tell, normal. We're not, we're coming back. Well, we, we've had an unusually mild late November here in the Washington, D.C. area. Okay. Uh, it, yesterday, it was, I think, 70-something degrees, <laughs> um, no wind. I've, I went out last weekend, uh, did a quick uh, round robin down to the Norfolk area, and uh, first time in my recent memory, uh, there was neither a headwind nor a tailwind. The wind was, the air was just absolutely calm, uh, smooth ride, um, very high pressure was part of the uh, part of the equation, but uh, great flying weather. But now, what's the fall and winter normally like where you live? You're in Virginia, just south of the Washington D.C. That's area. correct. Uh, I would normal um, for the Washington D.C. area is uh, uh, snafu. I guess would be the the uh, uh, the correct acronym. <laughs> but but fifty-ish, uh, uh, fifty-five-ish, um, maybe. Um, certainly jacket weather, a little bit of a breeze, uh, occasional uh, squalls moving through, etc. Thanksgiving week, or the, the day before Thanksgiving, it was overcast, rainy. There was a nor'easter that came up, and Jack, you probably saw part of that on Thanksgiving night. Um, that, you know, if it, temperatures were like 38, 40, something like that. It was just drizzly, misty, rainy. All of the, you know, a nice little mix there. If it had been 10 degrees colder, we'd still be digging out of all the snow. Uh-huh, yeah. Um, but uh, since then, it's it's been just just delightful, and this front coming through today is is going to screw things up for sure. Now, up here in the Boston area, the weather's been pretty weird too. For example, uh, we're we're recording this podcast on Friday morning, December first, I think it is, and uh, 
Um, yesterday, it reached 70 degrees here in Boston, which is just... Oh, that'll change. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it will, as a matter of fact. But for it to even happen for a day, and it's supposed to get almost that warm again today, although it's overcast and rainy today, it was beautiful yesterday. Yeah. 70 degrees, the sun was out. I mean, it was just spectacular up here yesterday. Um, and it will change. But on the flip side of the coin, this is what I was getting to here. Dave, what happened in your area of the world yesterday? Well, we went from uh, conditions in November that closely parallel what Jeb described. Uh, we actually had some temperatures into the uh, into the 80s this month. Uh, Mid-November, mid uh, I looked out the window of an institution I was uh, a guest of and, and saw people in short sleeve shirts and, and running shorts and... Uh, and you know, it was it was not an aberration. Everybody mm -hmm. was dressed that way. Outside. For the new listeners, you're in Wichita, Kansas. I'm in Wichita, Kansas. Uh, earlier this week, uh, I had to keep an early morning appointment. Uh, was out at five in the morning. It was in the fifties at five in the morning. But uh, Thursday, we had a pretty good reversal of fortune. Uh, Thursday morning brought uh, ice pellets, sleet, freezing rain. Back to, uh, I'm sorry, Wednesday morning, ice pellets, freezing rain, uh, ice pellets, back to freezing rain, and then uh, snow started uh, late Thursday, very light. Uh, early morning Thursday, it really started coming down. Uh, forecast was for as much as 12 inches, and some areas uh, outside of uh, the Wichita area did get 10 to 11 inches of snow, but it was blizzard-like yesterday. Uh, we got a little over six inches in my neighborhood. Uh, the winds were blowing in the uh, in the mid 20s, gusting low 30s. Uh, it was so far below freezing when the snow started to fall that the snow was mostly blowing across the streets and drifting in in in, in low spots. Uh, this morning, dawn clear and cool after the snow stopped last night. Uh, we had seven degrees uh, at the airport about an hour ago. So that would Man. be about eight o'clock. Uh, central time, uh -huh. and they're not expecting the high to uh, to be any more than 34 degrees, and not until about 5 o'clock this evening before it starts dropping to below freezing again. So we may get just enough melting to turn the world into a big big ice rink before the uh, night comes. And the, the good news for all the people east of us is that it's all headed their way. <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot. Uh, how unusual it. is that? Is that a kind of typical winter? I mean, is it in? It's in, not unusual for us. Uh, uh, what's unusual is the uh, uncharacteristically warm temperatures that we had in November. Uh, we've seen uh, pretty significant snows since we the 15 years we've been here, as early as mid October. Uh, usually, those were wet, heavy snows. Uh, four to five inches, uh, and then freezing temperatures at night that really screwed up the roadways uh, after nice wet snow fell all day long and got compacted by the cars. Uh, this super cold, very dry snow, that's a little unusual for this early, uh, but it's made the uh, made the world a little less difficult to deal with outside than, than the wet, heavy snow that we normally get. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not unusual for us to get a couple of big winter storms uh, between November and and February, and 12 to 14 inches in those isn't out of line. Uh huh. What does does the aviation is there is is aviation very seasonal in your area? Does do things slow down in the winter time? Things do slow down some. Uh, 
some of the more popular uh, uh, GA-only airfields in the area have what we like to, uh, to, to humorously dub uh, uh, solar radiation snow removal system. <laughs> uh, so until there's enough sun out and, and they can get maybe some uh, salt trucks out to uh, accelerate the melting, uh, the airports are basically, the runways are basically closed because of snow. Uh, a couple of the others, uh, Wichita, Jabara, of course, Mid-Continent is the air carrier airport. Uh, they keep it pretty well plowed and at least have one of the uh, north-south and one of the crosswind runways open. Wichita, Jabara, which is our busiest GA airport, uh, that's city-owned, privately managed. Uh, it'll be plowed. Uh, Augusta Muni. Uh, depending on how bad the city of Augusta is hit with snow, they may be able to get the city trucks, city plows out to the airport and get that 4,200-foot strip uh, cleaned up enough for operations. Uh, otherwise, you know, we'll, we'll be waiting on the, uh, on, on the sun to, uh, to remove the snow and uh, hopefully not leave a sheen of ice when everything's over. Uh, but it, it, there's a lot of guys enjoy going out this time of year and, 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 and flying in the cool, crisp air. Uh, it is so blue, it's, it's almost painful here. Yeah. Uh, it really doesn't get much prettier in Kansas in the wintertime than when there's a snow blanket coating all that ground that would otherwise be burnt brown. That sounds great, Jeb. Is there much of a seasonal aspect to flying in your area? I wouldn't absolutely think so. there is. And, oh, and, really? Uh, while while we were talking here, I just quickly pulled up some weather information, and uh, the current uh, surface map shows a low centered over the southern Illinois, St. Louis, Missouri area. Uh, snow uh, in the upper Great Lakes region. Um, uh, rain. Uh, extending uh, Ohio Valley and uh, in a, in a cold front up into New England. The local forecast here for the D.C. area is basically to, to hunker down and, and watch this, this cold front come through. There's already a line, I'd say, 150 miles or so west of us now of uh, red and yellow uh, pizza uh, kind of headed this way. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, it's going to be an interesting day here in the, in the Mid-Atlantic. Um, Two, two points. One, to answer your question, yes, there's definitely a, a seasonal aspect to aviation here in the D.C. area. Uh, first of all, of course, you just have the, uh, uh, the, uh, the summertime operations uh, uh, seems to be the, uh, the typical uh, time of year that people do a lot of the primary flight training. Um, some runways are just packed with uh, uh, trainers and, and uh, trainees during the summertime. In the wintertime, um, less so, obviously, but there's still a lot of training that goes on. The biggest problem I have with the wintertime flying around here is, I think, twofold. One is just getting the airplane out of the hangar. Uh, my, my hangar faces north and uh, is, is quite literally facing the wrong direction to get that solar heating and melting uh, of the snow and ice in front of it. While the rest of the ramp and taxiway area might be clear, I'll have literally a sheet of ice in front of my hangar. Getting the airplane in and out has proven, at least by myself, has proven impossible on occasion. And uh, then I have to call the FBO and ask them to bring out a truck, and, or a, I should say a tractor. And I have seen that thing just spin its wheels uh, on the ice trying to, trying to get my airplane in or out of the hangar. 
Um, the, the second thing I would I, I would mention, and kind of wearing my my professional hat in this arena, I would I would encourage uh, our listeners to, especially this time of year, especially when things move more quickly, like fronts and uh, uh, showers and things of this sort, and, and the temperatures can change drastically. Um, the, the temperature of the weather phenomena can change drastically. What used to be drizzle can turn into freezing rain almost instantaneously. I would simply encourage our listeners to, to pay more attention this time of year to their weather. Uh, if they want to go flying, great. Um, stro strongly encourage that. But, but just be aware that it's not spring and it's not fall. It's winter. And that means winter weather, and that means um, uh, some safety implications uh, well, if you you're going to go out and go flying. You mentioned weather moving faster, um, but other things tend to go slower, like the aircraft warms up more slowly. Uh -huh. uh, it may uh -huh. be more difficult to start. Uh, uh, human beings tend to slow down a little bit and have to pace themselves a little more when they're doing things like uh, pre-flight checks in bitter weather. Mm -hmm. uh, ask any student at the University of North Dakota uh, yeah. about what it's like pre-flighting on the ramp up there at Pier when it's uh, you know minus 20 and blowing 30. Uh, so do go out and fly like Jeb says. Enjoy some of the benefits of the cool winter air. But give yourself the extra time that you're going to need to prep for that flight, up to and including the weather briefing. Uh, don't be afraid to spend a few bucks on an engine preheat just for the health and safety of that power plant up front. And uh, give yourself time with the aircraft turned away from the wind so that that oil can get good and up into the green before you take off. The last thing you want is a little oil congealing in your, air, in your oil cooler. Uh, it could turn a really pleasant afternoon into something a lot less enjoyable very quickly. Yeah, See, that's the, the, the idea of uh, not not to not to disagree, but maybe to put some additional meat on that bone. The idea of turning the airplane uh, tail into the wind um, to to maximize uh, uh, or I should say minimize the time it takes to warm up the engine prior to takeoff may or may not be a good idea. It kind of depends on the airplane. It kind of depends on the engine. Um, I've always been one to uh, uh, suggest that uh, nothing really um, out of the ordinary in, as far as operations should occur uh, in the wintertime versus the summertime, but we should always be observing the aircraft's limitation. We should always be observing what the, the airplane flight manual, the POH, recommend relative to minimum oil temperature, for example, prior to takeoff. Um, everything uh, warms up more slowly in the winter time. Uh, Preheat pre is your friend, and and taking a propane heater uh, and and blowing on the engine for five or ten minutes doesn't cut it. Uh, uh, the the quick uh, the, the quick fixes to uh, warming an airplane prior to starting it um, just simply don't work. You need to put the airplane in a war in a heated hangar overnight. You need to uh, plug it into a, uh, an electrical heater, stick a uh, light bulb under the, can, uh, under the cowling, things of this sort. Long periods of time, slow uh, warmth uh, generated, or I should say distributed throughout the engine. Uh, and, and don't forget the cockpit. Um, um, the instruments get cold, bearings uh, uh, are slow to warm up in, in, the, in the gyro instruments. 
um, controls uh, can can freeze up or become very stiff in cold weather. Liquid crystal uh, screens don't react uh, well it, to it, cold weather. They're it, slow exactly. to come up. Exactly. And and there's also, you know, the issue of uh, uh, being certain that there is no water in our fuel. Um, uh, Never nasty, more critical. Water has a nasty habit of freezing at uh, 32 degrees or below. And uh, even if it's warm on the surface, once you take off and climb to altitude, it's likely to be below freezing. If there is any water at all in your fuel system, it can freeze it can shut down your engine and make you uh, wish you were sitting on the ground. And better be on the ground wishing you were up there than being up there wishing you were on the ground. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is all pretty fascinating. I have to confess that living up here in the Northeast in Boston, I've just I've always kind of figured, well, you guys are down in the South and you don't have winter down there. And uh, it's, uh, <laughs> well, it's, you a, know, it's an education, and it's not only an education, just kind of on a kind of you know uh, me being misinformed basis. It's a good information for pilots from the Northeast flying to the South, thinking yeah. they're going someplace where it's beautiful, yeah. and uh, the realization that it can get just as winter nasty, uh, you know, south of DC as it can north of DC is uh, is a real uh, important thing to learn, I think. I always chuckle when I when people consider Virginia as part of the South. And my my response to that is put a Virginia tag on your car, go down to Georgia and do eighty in a seventy zone and see if you think you're from the South. <laughs> <laughs> but the the punchline in all of this is that uh um pilots have a responsibility um to ensure the safety of their operations. They, as the, as the FARs say, must consider all information pertinent to their flight before they take off. And uh, winter weather has different uh, concerns, different considerations, poses different concerns and different considerations. And uh, we, have to, we have to take that into consideration. Just because it's nice here in Virginia today, this morning, although it's a little overcast and uh, we have the feeling of impending doom, um, doesn't mean that it's going to stay this way. Winter weather changes, and it changes generally for the worse. And uh, Jeb and I both share the, 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 in the fact that we've been blessed with a lot of opportunities to fly a lot across country over significant portions of the year in the pursuit of our work. Uh, so where we live, you know, is one dictate in how we deal with weather. But the fact that we may leave this climate for something much better or much worse on the same day uh, has kind of helped educate us on, on, on just how quickly things can go sour for you. Uh, you know, I've had more than a few occasions when leaving Wichita was clear and easy sailing. Uh, but by the time I was passing uh, south of St. Louis, eastbound across the Mississippi River, uh, it was either all hell was breaking loose because of thund summer thunderstorms or I was dodging ice and uh, freezing rain and, 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 and other bad precept in the wintertime in an attempt to get around a ridge to go into southern Indiana or on to D.C. Uh, when you start crossing a couple of time zones, in your cross-country pursuits, uh, you've got to look at that weather out so much farther than when you're just plying the skyways local and bopping 100 miles away for the $100 hamburger. Mm -hmm. yeah. And too, too few, too few well, pilots 
do enough of that the majority of their year, I think, for it to be uh, an ironclad habit for them to take into account how much things can change ahead in the four or five hours they may be en route. Yeah, this almost gets into a, a, a do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do situation. One of the roughest flights I've had in recent memory was uh, trying to get into Scottsdale, Arizona uh, one October a year or two ago. Um, that time of year you would not think would be um, that malevolent, but and it didn't start out that way. Uh, but here I am, 13, 15,000 feet, trying to get into the Phoenix area, IFR. Um, it's rough. Uh, there's a there's ice in them there, clouds. Um, I get a hold um, somewhere south of Phoenix uh, with an expect uh, further clearance time, like an hour hence. Um, busy time, uh, rough ride. Um, glad to have finally gotten myself on the ground in one piece. Um, that's an example of how winter weather can uh, can really impact operations. The other the other thing I would mention. I don't recall if it was the last uh, episode of Uncontrolled Airspace or the, the one prior to it. We talked about the possibility of my uh, attending a, uh, a press event down in Greensboro, North Carolina, oh, right, sponsored Honda. by Honda. And the Honda Jet uh, was on display, etc. Well, I uh, fully intended to make that trip, but did not. And the reason I didn't was for weather. Um, I woke up that morning, Dave, you'll appreciate this, got up at 5 o'clock, uh, uh, checked weather, um, started peeling the onion on the weather a little bit, and um, there was definite forecast for uh, ice uh, at the altitudes I would be forced to fly, along the route I would be forced to fly. Um, the, uh, the weather was worsening to the west, and that weather was coming, uh, moving east along the route. And I started looking at it and comparing what I know about that route to uh, what the conditions would be in the likely be in the forecast, and I scrubbed the trip uh, simply because um, you know some local knowledge compared with a healthy respect uh, told me that there would be icing uh, in the clouds um, along that route. There would be clouds along that route. There would be no way because of the Appalachian Mountains and the minimum in route altitudes along that route, that I could get below that level. Uh, climbing above it in a non-aspirated airplane, a normally aspirated airplane like I have, would have been difficult at best uh, and foolhardy perhaps uh, at most. Well, and you still uh, got to go up and down through the icing layer. And you, you still got to go up and down through the icing layer. And air traffic control in the Washington, D.C. area is, shall we say, unpredictable. The likelihood of my getting an unrestricted climb um, shortly after takeoff to a higher altitude uh, was unknown. The likelihood of my getting a preferred route or a, a different route was fairly well known. I would say slim and none would have been the opportunities for a, a different route. So I scrubbed the trip, and I'm still here to talk about it. Uh, uh, I know some people who did attend that event in Greensboro. Um, did pick up ice uh, at the lower altitudes, um, not in the, not that morning, uh, the morning I would have flown down there, but that afternoon, leaving Greensboro and headed south. So I feel confident I made the correct decision. Um, 
it's as Dave correctly points out, it's it's much better to be on the ground wishing you were in the air than than the other way around. But um, uh, that's what I think makes or breaks a quote good pilot unquote is is the ability to make an unpopular decision, defend it, and uh, be around for the next flight. That's my preaching for the day. <laughs> well, let me conclude this whole thing by uh, the subject, anyways, by by putting in a pitch for my favorite part of the country, weather-wise, uh, which is as 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 you guys know, I lived for about twelve years in the central northern California area, the San Francisco Bay Area, and although they certainly have some uh, winter weather to be careful about out there as well, uh, one of the things I always loved about living in the San Francisco Bay Area is how seldom it got in as low as the thirties. Uh, it what the winters out there are wonderfully mild. Uh, Forty degrees is a cold day in the winter time uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area. I'm not exaggerating when I tell you that if on the few occasions, and I'm telling you when I, I lived there 12 years, this maybe happened three times. On the few occasions when the weather actually gets at or below freezing in the San Francisco Bay Area, it is front page news. <laughs> it is, no exaggeration, a bigger story than an earthquake. All right. I'll bet. I'll bet, yeah. Well, let's move on here. Uh, before we start talking about some of the stories of the day, uh, I wanted to take a minute to remind everyone that uh, in addition to listening to this podcast, we hope that everyone will also visit the Uncontrolled Airspace website at uh, uncontrolledairspace.com. There's all sorts of good stuff to be found there. Uh, you can see show notes for all of our shows, including links to the web pages we've been talking about and other background information. You can listen to all of the or any of the previous episodes. You can sign up for our our reminder email list. You can get instructions on how to get a free subscription to this podcast through one of the podcatcher programs like iTunes or iPodder or Juice or others. Uh, and you should also remember for yourself and tell all your friends that you do not need an iPod to listen to podcasts like this one. You can download this cast to any portable audio device or just listen on your laptop or desktop computer. And finally, I hope everyone will check back to the website often for all sorts of coming soon features like a discussion forum and a blog, and one of these days, maybe even some uncontrolled airspace booty of one sort or another. So visit the website at uncontrolledairspace.com. One visit a week, that's all we ask. That's right. What Jack said. So, anyways, uh, what's going on? Uh, so we, that was actually a very interesting. I thought we'd just talk for a couple minutes about weather. That was all very, very interesting. Yeah, we, we for, for our listeners, that was totally unplanned. Um, uh, not that we plan everything that we do, but uh, that was just your, <laughs> your, your basic riff on uh, on winter weather. A lot of pent up frustration there, I think, among the. You guys been us. planning parts of this? Um, it, it's it's hard to tell sometimes. What else is going on out there in the world? We made a list, and we keep looking at it, and I think we're checking it twice. Yeah, you know, I don't know what's what's the big story on the list. You know, it's funny. There's a lot of little niggling, uh, interesting yeah. things here, but uh, uh, not anything that just completely jumps off the page. Uh, you know, I'll start swinging here with with a, a little business oriented story. Uh, a little over a week ago, uh, my colleagues, uh, former colleagues at the Wichita Eagle, broke a story that uh, that revealed three companies uh, in the process of bidding to buy Raytheon aircraft from uh, Raytheon at Corporate up in uh, Lexington, Massachusetts. Now, it's not been a secret that uh, Raytheon Large, as we call it here, 
has been uh, interested in selling off the aircraft division for some time. Uh, the common statement was they want to quote unquote focus on their core competencies, which is aerospace defense oriented stuff like target missiles and radar systems and uh, Patriot missile batteries and so forth. And uh, the uh, Beach and Hawker aircraft lines that Raytheon operates don't really fit into Raytheon's long term outlook. Lo and behold, one of the leading contenders is a company uh, in Canada called Onyx. And folks here in Wichita, particularly the folks at the old Boeing Wichita, are intimately familiar with Onyx because that's the entity that bought the Boeing Wichita assembly operation from Boeing Commercial Aircraft Group about two years ago. And that has since been taken private uh, by, by what is now called Spirit Aerosystems. And uh, about a week ago, we learned that the uh, machinist union employees and a bunch of other employees at, uh, at Spirit Aerosystems, as a result of the uh, private offering, are about to receive uh, $61,000 in cash and stock bonuses per person. Wow. Because yeah. of the success of the uh, initial public offering. Uh, so they are a leading contender to purchase Raytheon aircraft. Uh, they realize uh, that what the analysts are saying is uh, is 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 true fodder. That uh, the company really needs some updating to its assembly operations, uh, modernization of its lines. Uh, they're just getting the Hawker 4000 certified uh, after a 10-year effort that was delayed more times than we can remember. Uh, the the Premier One jet, uh, which shares the technology of a carbon fiber fuselage and metal wing and flying surfaces, uh, was also a couple of years late coming to market uh, ahead of the Hawker 4000. Uh, the mainstays on the piston side, the Bonanza and B-58 Baron, or I guess now G-58 Baron, uh, are among the two most expensive piston aircraft on the market and uh, are still built uh, almost exactly like they were when they were first introduced, well, for the Bonanza in 1947. Uh, very labor-intensive, very high parts counts. Uh, and uh, to compete a little bit better against the up-and-comers, there's a realization that there needs to be a cash infusion, some investments, some new product development. Onyx is sounding like a strong candidate to make that happen. Well, that so how do we think change the landscape here? How how do we think, if at all, this will affect the average aircraft owner? Uh, Let me clarify something for me here. Now, I, and we're are we talking about Beechcraft aircraft? Yes. Yes. So yeah, Jeb, you're a Beechcraft owner. That's do you have correct. any kind of opinion on how this might shake yeah, out? Yeah. Uh, one of the other bidders I understand to be the Carlisle Group, uh, which is a, uh, as I recall, a, a Washington D.C. based. Uh, investment uh, organization. Um, they have a, their fingers in a lot of different pies, both domestically and internationally. Um, Onyx sounds like it would be a company that would be more interested in taking the, the Raytheon Beechcraft brands and, shall we say, bringing them into the 21st century. Yeah. Carlisle Group sounds more like a company that uh, would take those uh, take that that company and break it apart for its its constituents, uh, um, basically to to make a profit, a quick profit. Um, I have I have 
nothing on which to base that assumption other than simply track records of those of those companies over the years. Uh, I, I, the the name of the third company uh, involved in bidding for Raytheon escapes me, but it, it's not really relevant. Um, Raytheon and, and those of us who uh, who own and operate Beechcraft products um, have for years railed uh, at Raytheon for its lack of of product development. Um, it's it's uh, high prices for for seemingly uh, simple parts. Um, the good thing about um, at least vintage uh, Bonanzas and Barons is that many of the parts on them are generic. They are uh, uh, an MSAN type of part, perhaps. Um, there are alternate sources for those kinds of parts from. Um, uh, well, from vendors other than Beechcraft, shall we say, or, or, or uh, Raytheon. Um, whether um, this this sale of, of Raytheon and Beechcraft to a third party it, it would be beneficial, of course, depends on uh, who the ultimate purchaser is. My feeling is um, that it could go either way, but I'm, I'm kind of encouraged, actually, that uh, there might be some changes not just in the way that uh, uh, Raytheon and, and Beechcraft do business now, but down the road, if, if the ultimate purchaser decides to, to make a go of this uh, this brand, uh, we could see some exciting things. We could see you know a, a plastic Beechcraft, for example. We could see some some genuine new product development instead of just trying to put lipstick on a on a 50, 60 some odd year. Uh, old pig uh, uh, like the like the bonanza and the and the baron, uh, and I'm not <laughs> suggesting that the bonanza and the baron are pigs, but we're talking about dressing up. Uh, if people misunderstood is, you. Well, you know, it's yeah, just unfortunate. Address address those notes to Jim Burnside. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And and keep in mind when you do address those notes that I do fly a Beechcraft. Um, but they have nice ones. Uh, thank you. But the the punchline here, I think, is that the the bonanza. And the Baron are based on designs that have had their heyday uh, during and shortly after. Yeah, during and shortly after World War II. Yeah, the Bonanza uh, first are, flew in December of 1945. That's right. So uh, uh, this is this is not new technology, um, as Dave correctly points out. It's a it's a manpower intensive aircraft to to uh, construct. Um, there is there is nothing really new here uh, uh, with these aircraft, and I would be uh, not the least bit uh, surprised to see um, them go out of production uh, f at least for a period of time, while uh, the the production methods, uh, the tooling, uh, are perhaps redone. Um, there will always be a market uh, for aircraft like the the Bonanza and the Baron. But um, there's obviously, as, as we might get to here shortly, in talking about Cirrus and the fact that they have set uh, single-engine piston sales records for the fifth year in a row, um, there's also a market for uh, new technology airframes. And uh, hopefully, um, in the future, those airframes would carry a Beechcraft or a Raytheon label. On the... Uh communications I've had with some of my uh, my friends and colleagues at uh, uh, Raytheon out on East Wichita. Uh, given the news that they've heard from uh, Spirit Aero Systems in the last week and 10 days, 
uh, right now there's a lot of internal rooting that Onyx wins this contest, buys the company out, and works some of the magic at, at Raytheon that they worked at Spirit Aerosystems. Now the caveat to all this is that the machinist union at Spirit Aerosystems, uh, the, well, all the employees basically had to reapply for their jobs with uh, with Onyx when Onyx bought out uh, Boeing Wichita. And not all of them were rehired. About a thousand uh, employees lost their jobs. Uh, the people that were retained in some uh, work areas, including the machinist union members, uh, agreed to some, uh, some uh, pretty sizable changes in their pay and benefits packages, primarily pay packages, uh, to get a contract with, with Onyx, uh, hence change to Spirit Aerosystems. Uh, but then you look at how the long term played out. Uh, they do an initial public offering to take the company from private to public. And uh, what had been promised those employees has in fact come true. Uh, they were profitable enough. Uh, they generated enough uh, equity in the uh, initial public offering to give all those machinist union members a $61,000 bonus in cash and stock. And remember, that stock is a long-term uh, long bonus. It will very likely rise. It'll pay dividends. It might even split someday and make these machinist uh, members, machinist union members, uh, even better off for that decision. Uh, well, a lot of the guys over at Raytheon Aircraft are looking at that saying, we could take that. <laughs> and there's there's some ripe opportunities for improving efficiencies uh, at Raytheon Aircraft, as Jeb kind of hinted. Uh, for example, uh, the wings and some of the uh, tail structures are all uh, uh, assembled at a uh, plant in Salina, Kansas. Uh, some of those work packages could be spun off to contracting companies that could accomplish them with new tooling, uh, new some new interior work, uh, and very likely at a lower cost. Uh, some of those same changes could come to uh, plant one where the bonanzas or plant two where the bonanzas go together. Uh, anything that could bring that down from the seven hundred thousand dollar price tag that a, that a G thirty six carries right now. Uh, could only be a good thing in the long term, particularly if the company finds a way to do it that preserves the profit margin that they're generating off those aircraft. Uh, more airplane sales means more jobs. More jobs means more stability. More stability means uh, the company's better able to invest in new products long term. Uh, so there's a lot of positive potential here. But in the end, it's going to depend on who wins the bidding, under what conditions. Uh, and the last thing I'd want to be is somebody on the front line of this deal trying to negotiate with the folks in Lexington, Mass. Uh, they do value Raytheon aircraft very, very highly. And uh, we're talking multiple billions of dollars here in, in terms to buy it out. Interesting. Yeah, I, I wish um, not only uh, the, the workers at, at Raytheon a lot of luck, uh, and I, but I also wish the eventual purchaser of, of Raytheon and Beechcraft uh, goodwill also. Um, the Beechcraft line uh, is a very proud one, as, as we note that just the Bonanza line alone has been out there for 60 plus years. Um, yeah, next year's the 60th anniversary that's of right. its certification. That's right. Um, 
these are these are just great airplanes. Uh, mine is is forty years old. It doesn't look like it's a day over thirty. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> we could say I've the same thing about It looks you. nice. Yeah. I like your yeah. airplane. Um, but I guess the the punchline in all this is that uh, uh, it's a very proud mark. It's a very proud brand, and uh, still offers a, a great deal uh, in the general aviation market. Well, they're um, excellent aircraft. They, they are, and and uh, uh, the, the problem is that technology, of course, has has marched along, and uh, uh, the manufacture of those aircraft has not kept have not kept pace. So uh, there well, does need you, to go ahead. I was going to say, when you look across town to West Wichita, home of Cessna mm -hmm. aircraft, mm -hmm. uh, anybody that followed the uh, recent AOPA Expo in Palm Springs is bound to have heard, read, or seen images of the uh, NGP, as in November Golf Papa, Cessna's next generation piston aircraft. That's a complete departure from the 172, 182, 206 that they're building now. Uh, employs new technology in the fuselage, uh, new power plant, new wing. It's cantilevered. It's going to be faster. It's going to be bigger. It's going to be more fuel efficient. It's going to be the airplane that really challenges the SR-22 and the G-22 for primacy in that end of the market. Uh, but it's the first airplane that we've, uh, we're going to see out of an old line manufacturer to step up and actually try to challenge Cirrus's uh, growing dominance head on with something of comparable technology. Uh, so there's a limit to how far you can expect a Bonanza to go when even its you know most traditional competitor antagonist Cessna is finally coming around to the uh, to the realization that they can't succeed by continuing to gild a 50-year-old lily like the 172 and 182, mm -hmm. that at some point they've got to raise the bar in airframe technology, in performance, in efficiency, in hauling capability, and they just can't squeeze those changes into the same old sheet metal they've been rolling off independence for the last 10 years. And, and that, and you just you just touched on what I wanted to to speak to very very briefly. It is it has it literally been 10 years as of uh, November. Yes. Uh, that in the independence factory started churning out uh, piston airplanes. Um, that followed a 10-year hiatus at Cessna yeah. from 86 to 96 uh, when it did not manufacture any single-engine pistons. Um, 7,000 airplanes coming out of independence in the last uh -huh. 10 years. 7,000. Which, which is a remarkable 700 per year. The math is very easy. Um, and uh, that, that says a lot about the market. It, it, you know, hats off to Cessna, by all means, for Absolutely. for for making the commitment uh, that they made in '94, when um, uh, they said, "Look, if you pass this General Aviation Revitalization Act, uh, we will go back and start making piston airplanes again." And and the the uh, the act, of course, talked about. Uh, uh, restrictions on product liability and, and uh, created some statutes of repose uh, limiting aircraft component and, and airframe manufacturers uh, liability over the long term. Um, Cessna stuck by their guns. 18-year limit. 18-year limit. Cessna stuck by their guns. They uh, um, followed through on their commitments and they're certainly reaping the benefits now having sold that many airplanes in, in that short amount of time. Hats oh, off to them, and, and hats off to those who who had the faith to 
to invest in Cessna and buy the new airplanes. That was, well, that was are, a leap of faith itself. They, they are poised to reap some new benefits, mm-hmm. uh, also out of independence. Uh, a little over a week ago, uh, word came that Cessna delivered the first Mustang yep. to a company called the uh, Mustang Management Group out in California, which promptly leased it back to Cessna for 10 months for use as a demonstrator. Uh, and, you know, that's a little change in keys and paperwork and the airplane it essentially never went to California. Right. But the, uh, the, uh, the door is off the VLJ contest, uh, the uh, laurels for first delivery of a VLJ uh, go firmly to Cessna uh, and their order books fat on that. They're looking at 70 a year initially. Uh, that means their current order book will take them out about three and a half to four years. And with them delivering and getting airplanes in the system, uh, don't be surprised to see demand for that aircraft go up. Uh, second, Cessna's got a network of uh, what they call Sea Stars. That's their uh, their sales network, and uh, Cessna Flight School affiliates that are chomping at the bit to put Cessna Sport on their flight line and in their inventory. Uh, that's the light sport aircraft that uh, Cessna has been flying for the last few months. They that Cessna the, hasn't even said officially that they're going to build. And they are still not saying officially that it's going to be built because uh, they've admitted to uh, a number of insiders in the industry in recent weeks that uh, they are fighting some of the same issues that uh, manufacturers typically fight when they're inventing something new for their, for their uh, history. Uh, in this case, it's weight and cost. Uh, well, while a, we're on the while we're on the topic of of uh, manufacturers fighting obstacles, um, Avweb this morning floated an email uh, noting that they have a podcast up um, with respect to a two-part interview with Eclipse Aviation's president and CEO Vern Rayburn. Uh, the general topic, uh, at least as explored uh, in that email, has to do with uh, some apparently some detailed discussion regarding the status of the Eclipse program and why they have not delivered a, 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 their first VLJ to a retail customer. Uh, I have not had the opportunity to listen to that. I don't know the content. I just know what the email said. But that also is an interesting uh, situation. Um, Eclipse clearly had the opportunity to beat Cessna uh, to the punch of, of making that first retail delivery of a VLJ. Um, as, as Dave correctly noted, Cessna has delivered a, a VLJ uh, in, the, in the size and shape of a Cessna, Mustang, Cessna Citation Mustang. Um, Eclipse uh, has, has uh, for, for whatever reasons, not been able to, to, to climb that hurdle. Um, they've had certainly a, a, a lot of challenges. The major challenge that, says, uh, that Eclipse has had, of course, has been uh, making the transition from a developmental company to a manufacturing company. Uh, it's, it's certainly not an easy one for any company, and I'm not suggesting that it's either more, more difficult or easier for, uh, for Eclipse, but that seems to be uh, at least part of the, the situation. There seems to be some other uh, conformity issues relative to satisfying the FAA that uh, the production aircraft are indeed uh, uh, put together in the same way and, and uh, this, this sort of thing. But uh, 
all that really does is highlight the, the complexity and the difficulty of uh, manufacturing a new quote unquote airframe in this day and age. Um, Eclipse has the resources, the technical know-how, uh, the expertise to make this happen and they will make it happen. Um, it's just a matter of time. Uh, um, Cessna is like a machine when it comes to developing new airframes. They will tell you three, four years in advance of you know, what its performance parameters will be, uh, when it will be certificated, when it will be first delivered, and they will either meet or exceed those parameters. Um, they have literally become a product development, a, a new aircraft development machine. Well, and one of the reasons years. why is that they never, they are never at a state where they are not in some yes. phase of new product yes. development. I mean, that's, even that's as exactly we right. speak, and the Mustang is going out the door, and they've got some new jets in the pipeline that they announced at NBAA. Uh, can tell you, sure as I can tell you, that there's snow on the ground outside in Wichita. That behind those programs that we know about are other programs that we won't hear about for another year to two years, but they're already on the drawing boards. There's already market research being done. There's already work with avionics and engine manufacturers to make sure that there's equipment that can satisfy the parameters that they come up with. Uh, juggernaut comes to mind. Uh, it is just a perpetual state of affairs at Cessna Aircraft for develop development. To it be just on makes the front me burn. all tingly. Yeah, it's great, huh? But now we've come to uh, an area where Cessna has not dabbled uh, since the uh, end of Cessna 152 production 20 years ago, and that's a yeah. two-seat aircraft. Yeah. And as it turns out, their dealer network and their flight school network are begging them to produce this airplane called the Cessna Sport. Interesting. Uh, my inside contacts uh, out in West Wichita tell me that, uh, that they want to do this airplane, but they are struggling with getting the weight of the uh, airframe into a shape that will allow it to accommodate some higher-end options that some flight schools, I can't name, some institutional flight schools would like to have installed in these airplanes so that they're training students, ab initio students, on glass cockpits in an LSA. Hmm. Uh, well, that's that's definitely a cost issue, if not a bit of a weight issue, when you consider that the basic purpose of an LSA is not to be a, a high-end, high-technology instrument-based trainer, but it certainly can serve that role uh, under the right circumstances. So uh, Cessna is working on keeping the weight in line so that it can accommodate those, uh, those options uh, as desired by some of the institutional customers that they may attract. Uh, there's work on producing it at a price point that'll let them uh, have a profitable entry-level model that will appeal to uh, the, the buyer that wants just a bare-bones airplane, maybe with a single comm, a transponder, and uh, a, a VFR GPS. And uh, that's a very popular configuration among a lot of the existing LSAs, uh, up through and including uh, models that will accommodate uh, a, 
a fairly advanced digital autopilot from uh, one of the upstart manufacturers. Uh, those are already proving very popular on airplanes, uh, other airplanes in the LSA category. Uh, boy, I had one in mind. My brain just went blank on it. Uh, but uh, that's a, a seven to nine thousand dollar option. Uh, solid state instruments adds a few thousand dollars. Uh, the airplanes that I'm thinking of and can't name, uh, they go very quickly from just below a hundred thousand dollars to almost a hundred and twenty thousand dollars. But they screen. Yeah. They got forty inch wide cock, forty eight inch wide cockpit, all electronic panels. Out, Autopilots with altitude hold, GPS navigation, still a VFR airplane, but can be flown at night by a private pilot, uh, and it'll cruise an honest 122 knots uh, up at altitude and do it on a four-gallon-an-hour fuel burn. Mm -hmm. uh, they're selling 100 and some out of those a year at a plus $100,000 price tag. So imagine a marketing juggernaut like Cessna, if they can bring their sport in, at anywhere close to the same performance level, also a 48-inch wide airplane, which is, uh, for those of you that have forgotten this, uh, is a full uh, six to eight inches wider than a Cessna 150. Yeah. Uh, and if they can bring that in under $100,000 competitively equipped uh, with the network of dealers and, and flight schools that will put that on the line, uh, I don't see anybody out there that's going to be able to, get in the way of the sport being a runaway success. That's great. You got, Boy, you guys are doing such a good job of segueing from subject to subject here that I haven't been able to sneak in here with a couple things I wanted to talk about. Uh, let's see. This past month, I, uh, it, it's funny how these things kind of, you know, serendipity and things connect. We, we talk a lot about cross-pollination. I attended a user group meeting in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Uh, it was a Macintosh users group meeting where the subject of the month was how you do podcasts and what podcasting is all about. Uh, one of the speakers there was a guy named Corey Cooper, who is part of uh, a website called Mac OSG, which stands for Owner's Support Group. It's basically a Mac Macintosh users help online help uh, group and they do a podcast um, more or less once a, a week and in the very next episode of their Macintosh podcast they gave a nice little mention to us here at Uncontrolled wow. Airspace uh, including oh. a, uh, a link on their uh, in their show notes so we want to thank Corey and the folks at uh, Mac OSG uh, for for that little uh, mention that was very nice we appreciate it thank and you thank you thank you yeah yes, finally um, and two episodes ago, in number six of Uncontrolled Airspace, um, I, I told about, we, we mentioned the uh, the Finer Points podcast, and I made reference to one particular guest on the Finer Points, a guy who go, who goes or went by the name of Captain Rod of the Civil Air Patrol. Uh, and uh, he then turned around and gave us a nice little mention on his website. Uh, he runs an aviation blog uh, called... Cap blog. He's very active in the Civil Air Patrol, uh, apparently from the Chicago area. Uh, and uh, he gave us a nice mention there. I won't quote the whole thing, but the one line I like a lot is he says, The Uncontrolled Airspace podcast has earned a place on my iPod. So, wow. Uh, wow. Um, cool. And uh, he, uh, he gave us a nice little uh, uh, turnaround uh, thank you for uh, mentioning him, and, and we thank him for mentioning us. And we saw a, ni a nice little spike of visitors to the website from that entry in his blog. So that's really nice, too. So uh, Keep Captain those cards and letters coming in. Captain Rod, whose uh, full name is, uh, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, Captain Rod, I apologize. Um, it's R-A-K-I-C, Rakik, 
or rakish. I, I apologize. Um, he goes by the uh, the nickname Midway Six. So Captain Rod Midway Six Rakish, we thank you very much. Uh, his blog is capblog dot typepad dot com. That's C A P B L O G dot typepad dot com. And you should check out his blog. Very cool. I got a little shout out that uh, I'd like to send congratulations to U.S. Attorney uh, here in Kansas, a gentleman by the name of Eric Melgren, who uh, a little over a week ago sent a uh, interloper to prison for 20 years for taking a pot shot at a Cessna 150 and wounding the pilot. Uh, the uh, the accused, a gentleman by the name of Michael Mashad, was on the run from police uh, in western Kansas back in April of 2005. Uh, the local law enforcement recruited a local pilot, uh, Mike Spicer from western Kansas, to uh, try to track him down from the air. Uh, the pilot and uh, his observer found the, uh, the perpetrator who promptly took a shot at, uh, at the aircraft. Uh, the bullet came through the windshield of the 150, uh, hit the pilot in the forehead above the left eye, left a six-inch gash across his forehead. Could have been fatal. Uh, despite the uh, injury, Mike Spicer was able to safely land the aircraft. Uh, his observer was able to relay information on the location of the, uh, of the perpetrator. And... Uh, you know, it's good to see that the, uh, the the federal authorities take shooting at uh, aircraft as seriously as they do. Uh, so, Mr. Mashad, who was arrested uh, on April 30th of 2005, uh, will be uh, uh, out of circulation and unable to take pot shots <laughs> at other aircraft until about 2026. Which Our just hats breaks off my to heart. Attorney Melgren. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah you're I, here. No. I'd like to give a shout-out, or, or at least note, uh, shout-out's certainly the wrong word, the loss of uh, uh, someone who's, who's done a great deal of uh, uh, good uh, in uh, the environmental arena. Um, David Hermance, I believe is the pronunciation of his name, uh, was a Toyota executive, an engineer uh, with Toyota Motors in California. Uh, widely known as the father of the uh, Prius, the Toyota Prius, the hybrid uh, car, uh, was killed uh, over the weekend um, in an accident involving his uh, experimental uh, aerobatic airplane. An uh, Interavia E3. Exactly, which I, I understand to be a uh, uh, kind of a home-built uh, yak uh, type of aircraft. Uh, I've seen some photos of it. I, I know very little more about it. Uh, apparently, um, um, Hermance was uh, uh, practicing some aerobatics uh, over the coast uh, um, uh, near Los Angeles. Uh, something happened, and he did not pull out of a dive, um, hit the water, and that was about all she wrote. Uh, apparently, the wreckage um, uh, has been uh, or is in the process of being recovered. Uh, but we have to sadly note uh, his loss, and uh, uh, apparently someone who not only loved aviation but uh, was very, very good at what he did, was well known for what he did, and um, uh, just another sad uh, note uh, uh, 
for general aviation and, and for uh, uh, environmentalists worldwide. Absolutely. Our, our thoughts go out to his family. Yes. We're um, running out of time here. What else? Any, any, on the uh, downside, any I think it's time that we added our three voices to uh, numerous other voices, the 13,000 pilots at American Airlines, unionized pilots there, uh, members of the National Business Aviation Association, the Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association, which I believe all of us are members, uh, calling on the state of Brazil to send home the two pilots that they're detaining from the legacy uh, Gold Airlines uh, midair on September 29. Uh, there's a, a, a growing international movement uh, to uh, prevent the criminalization of aircraft accident investigations before there's evidence of any criminal act. And that's exactly what's happening here in Brazil. Uh, this was an accident of, of, of huge proportions for the folks in Brazil, for the, for the 154 people on the 737 that died. Uh, but there's no evidence of criminal action or criminal wrongdoing here. Nonetheless, Brazil has retained, detained these pilots uh, since September 29, even amid growing evidence that, uh, for example, the uh, air traffic controllers handling those segments were uh, in the midst of a shift change, and the outgoing shift briefed the incoming shift with incorrect information. Now. We've seen one other instance here in the United States where the uh, federal authorities acted immediately to criminalize uh, an investigation, and that was the uh, TWA 730, uh, 747 explosion off Long Island uh, a few years ago. Uh, they immediately assumed it had, had to be a terrorist act. The FBI got into it, uh, usurped the NTSB's responsibility. A lot of necessary investigative uh, evidence was contaminated because of how the FBI decided it needed to collect evidence. And it took years longer to put together an accurate picture of what turned out to be n nothing hostile whatsoever. Uh, here in Brazil, we've got uh, a pair of professional pilots that had to surrender their ha passports. There have been house guests in a hotel in Rio de Janeiro. There are worse places that you could be stuck, but it ain't home, folks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and there's no evidence of any criminal action on their part. There's no evidence of any criminal wrongdoing on their part. Matter of fact, all the evidence seems to point to them doing exactly what they were told to do and the confusion being among the Brazilian ATC authorities. Uh, Brazil, let these people come home, finish your accident investigation, bring them back to testify, but let's do this the straight up way as an accident investigation and not a pseudo-criminal investigation. I'd like to add another concept to this, and that is the, the politicalization of aircraft accidents. I, I think the uh, TWA yes, 800 episode is uh, uh, perhaps the first example in North America, but clearly the Brazilian uh, situation uh, is, is perhaps less about criminalization and more about poli politicalization. Um, clearly there has been, uh, in, if, if one has been tracking uh, the news reports on this situation, um, there has been a great deal of discussion of Brazilian public opinion on this episode. Initially, uh, the, the public in Brazil was up in arms, and, and perhaps justifiably so, that uh, 
this accident occurred, and especially occurred in the fashion that it occurred. Um, that public opinion has shifted over time as more and more details have emerged, grudgingly perhaps. Um, there was a situation where uh, at one point um, controllers on duty at the two facilities involved in this, this mid-air collision uh, refused to testify uh, for whatever reasons. Uh, their union got involved. Um, there have been more facts emerged thanks to the NTSB, which has been invited in to the investigation by Brazilian authorities. Um, the NTSB, a week or so ago, uh, released a very lengthy and very detailed factual discussion of the investigation's findings but to date. They did needs not... to be pointed out that that was a pass-on from Brazil. Yeah. That was not well, the NTSB's own investigation. I, I will accept that. Um, it, was, it was structured in a fashion and published by the NTSB in a fashion to make it uh, an NTSB-sanctioned uh, set yes. of facts. Um, adhered to their standard reporting yes. format. There, there is a number of, of items that, that that document, shall we say, highlighted that make the situation even murkier for not only the Brazil, the, the two U American pilots who uh, were were uh, the flight crew of the Embraer that collided with the 737, but also make it murkier for Brazil's air traffic control system itself. That's correct. Um, there are there, almost a classic lost communication situation. There's a, a failure, apparently, by the air, air traffic controllers to, as Dave correctly noted, um, do the, the uh, uh, shift change briefings correctly. Um, there was basically the system lost the Embraer for some period of time. And uh, one can argue... Uh, and probably we will see a number of arguments in coming months about what came first, what was the proximate cause of this accident, um, who shares the lion, who has the lion's share of responsibility. Um, but there's enough going on from what I see in that factual report that uh, it will take some time to sort this one out. It is a wake-up call, I think, uh, not just to uh, Brazilian. Uh, air traffic control, not just to uh, pilots uh, in Brazil, but uh, throughout the world, uh, people on both sides of the microphone, um, to to wake up and pay a little bit more attention to what's going on. It's a situational awareness thing. Uh, it involves l lost communication procedures. It involves um, clearances. It involves uh, what to do in an abnormal situation. Uh, and uh, this is going to be a very, very interesting uh, uh, episode in, in aviation safety. And in the, the meantime, world. Brazil should let our guys come home. In the meantime, it's been over two months. It's, it's time it's, to let them come they've home. They've missed Thanksgiving with their families. Uh, we know who they are. Uh, we are willing. I, I can't speak for the pilots. I can't speak for their families. I can't speak for the companies involved. But uh, I think it's it's evident that all involved want to see uh, the, the true facts of this episode uh, come out, uh, be recognized, and uh, we want to see um, uh, the, 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 the causes for this tragedy, <clears throat> excuse me, causes for this tragedy to be decided and, and fixes put in, not just in Brazil, but throughout the world. 
um, uh, extremely unfortunate situation, but it's one that we can learn from. We've got to let the pilots go. Um, we will, I think it's safe to say, the United U.S. authorities uh, and, and the pilots involved want to see the right thing done. Okay, guys, we got to. This is a, this is so. This is our lesson learned. This is what happens when we start out a podcast when we think we don't have anything to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> Want to thank uh, Jeb Burnside, uh, AviationSafetyMagazine.com, and also AvWeb.com. Thanks, Jeb. My pleasure. And Dave Higdon, uh, DaveHigdon.com, uh, and uh, thank you very much, Dave. Welcome. Look out for the snow. Probably going to keep my wheels on the ground today. And I'm Jack Hodgson with jackhodgson.com. Visit the uncontrolledairspace.com website. I want to thank everyone for listening. See you next time. Take care. Oh, the weather outside is frightful, but the fire is so delightful. And since we've no place to go, let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. It doesn't show signs of stopping, and I brought some corn for popping. The lights are turned way down low. You can email your suggestions and feedback about this podcast to podcast at uncontrolledairspace.com. Don't know why there's no sun up in the sky. Stormy weather. Since my man and I ain't together Keeps raining all of the time Oh yeah, life is bad The Uncontrolled Airspace podcast is a production of UncontrolledAirspace.com and Jack Hodgson of Three River Productions. Your business organization could easily be taking advantage of the power and prestige of podcasting. For help with any and all aspects of using this new medium to present your products and messages, visit our website at threeriverproductions.com.